One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, Featuring me, Mike Calvin, John Cross of The Daily Mirror, and Miguel Delaney of The Independent. The Champions League resumes this week. For my money, it's the best club tournament in the world. Speaking of money, as we seem to do constantly, football is changing before our eyes. The fear and loathing generated by the Newcastle takeover hints at the underlying pressures at the top of the game where greed, political expedience and naked self-interest set the agenda. Now, Migs, you were at St James's Park for that surreal spectacle on Sunday. Looking at the bigger picture, there's an understandable suspicion that a Super League is back on the agenda. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it ever really went away. And not just because, obviously, Barcelona, Juventus and Real Madrid have been so reluctant and so belligerent about giving up the idea. There's still that seed there. But I, I did a piece on this about a month ago as the Champions League returned. And the way it was put to me was that even if it's not quite a Super League in the way that was put forward in April... It might return in another form, which is basically as a challenge to UEFA's governance of football and an attempt to kind of bring in a Super League through the Champions League rather than a complete breakaway. But yeah, you're completely right, I suppose. And the Newcastle situation shows the forces that created the Super League, which ultimately is about a certain number of clubs, either be they kind of traditional powers or new powers who were taken over, They've grown to a size that's almost too big for the game. And, you know, they either they see themselves as being kind of hamstrung by the rest of it, or in the case of someone like Barcelona, they became so big they had to fail, really, that they want alternative access to revenue. And that's not going to change. I mean, and that's, that's still kind of a core running through football now as well, that it's always always more, 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 always kind of, they want perpetual financial growth, which should really be impossible in sport. It hasn't gone away. And the, and the Newcastle situation, when the Newcastle thing was broached again, and when we looked back on the agenda, there was all this kind of talk, particularly from some of their supporters, about how, oh, this is putting it up to the elite. This is as if it was some sort of blow for everyone else in the game, for kind of, for those who can't compete. But of course, it's the opposite of the case, because it's not, it's not increasing equality in football. It's just creating more inequality and just putting on one more superpower that, again, arguably kind of favours the conditions for the return of a Super League. Mm. Do you think, John, that the biggest clubs should be careful what they wish for here? Because, OK, it's all very well to 
obey your political masters, to bolster the bottom line. But what does football lose by just becoming simply a business? Well, I think you take out the romance, really, and the upsets and the glory of it, really. I know that sounds very simplistic and people might say, well, there's no romance or kind of fairy tales left in football. And they're probably right. But I don't know. I do still think we love the days of an upset, a big win. And I think that in the Premier League, I was at Watford, Liverpool on Saturday and then listening to the radio sort of coming home. And some of the results sort of flying in. We still want to see those upsets, don't we? And I think if we're not careful, the biggest thing for me is that we lose the glory and the romance of Saturdays like that. I mean, there's something fantastic about a sort of a Saturday, which I'm sure Man United fans wouldn't agree, but sort of kind of that Leicester game was just crazy. Villa Wolves, what an incredible story that was, basically. And I just feel the danger about this is that the greed will end up with football eating itself, basically. And I'm like you, Mike, I do love the Champions League and Champions League weeks. And I think that you can still get upsets. The group stage does need looking at. I do still think that the Champions League perhaps needs a bit of an overhaul. I love the, in the COVID times, that kind of those one-off games and ties. I still think that there's lessons to be learned and, and it can be improved. But there's clearly issues there. And I think, you know, there's anger within football about, as they perceive it, as the greed of UEFA. Obviously, FIFA trying to change the global calendar. So football has got major, major challenges. But I do still think that within those challenges and changes which we have ahead, we cannot lose what is very basic to us, which is the lure of football and the those really good stories. And trouble is that basically if those 12, 14 clubs do decide to break away and push through and go again, basically, I think that you just lose the average fan. You just lose that enthusiasm and lose the connection. And that's the biggest problem. I'd like to think that some clubs have, within that group have learnt their lesson. But I don't think others have. And, you know, clearly three continue to challenge it and that's just simply not going away. Mm. We'll talk a bit later, Migs, about the atmosphere at Newcastle on on Sunday, which you look at fans in general, they do care about the nature of their owners. You know, you've only got to look at the campaign against the Cronkies at Arsenal, Hicks and Gillette at Liverpool, and, you know, the obvious target of fan discontent has been the Glazers at Manchester United. It's a huge week for United. But again, I want to try and put this into a broader perspective. Okay, Manchester United's stock fell by $607 million in a week on the US exchange simply because of worries about the Saudi presence. Now, the Glazers have taken another, I think it's $180 million out of the club, nothing back into Manchester United. They've got no worries as owners, as investors, if Champions League income and global commercial impacts guaranteed. Does all that explain the lack of urgency to upgrade on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Well, I think the Solskjaer situation fits into United's wider policies and almost a financial approach too, in that it was put to me at the weekend and, and at, at previous times when a manager's been under threat, they don't move unless top four looks mathematically impossible or is on the brink of being mathematically impossible. That's what it comes down to. It comes down to those hard figures. Now, it, it could be said then that that, that ultimately points to um, 
the lack of football intelligence at Manchester United. Because if they had some sort of sporting director there or figures really influential for this hierarchy that could see what pretty much everyone else can see, that this isn't really working out, that Solskjaer isn't a top-level coach, then they could act much sooner and much more proactively. But even what what you're saying there about kind of the um, the share price in the wake of the Newcastle thing, it, it again points to kind of this, and, and Crossy touched on it there, what kind of what, what the romance of the game should be about and, and what moves fans. And, the, and there is a real, there's a real tension at the top level of football. I remember when the Super League happened, I was talking to someone who works on the business side, and they're kind of pointing out that this is, this, this is ultimately the, the, the issue or the, the, the tension that's caused such problems for so long, which is basically these biggest clubs, and particularly actually in this case, the American owners who are looking on a return on investment. For them, business is ultimately about killing competition, whereas, of course, the essence of sport is recreating competition every year. And that's why the whole variability, that, I mean, that, that, that's what we watch sport for, mostly beyond the kind of the connection or what it means for our identity and, when, and how, how teams represented us. But it's about the unpredictability of sport. But they don't want this unpredictability, as we've seen with the Super League, because unpredictability takes away financial guarantees. And while, while that tension exists, we're always going to have situations like that. And again, it, and this just brings us down to deeper questions and why the Newcastle thing is so relevant. Because as soon as you have owners who want to remove the unpredictability of sport, we're asking, well, how has this been allowed? Ultimately, clubs, what are clubs? They really exist for only two connected reasons. One is to play football, and that is to play football as representations of their local community. Any owner that has ideals or aims that run external to those should really be scrutinised. And of course, you can see that with even American owners who have been lauded, like at Liverpool, they're still venture capitalists. They still want to return on investment. And return on investment will involve ideas that kind of potentially run contrary to what sport, and particularly football, is about. And this is why the owners and directors should even be much stronger than ideas that have come up in the last few days, like that it shouldn't allow nation states to own football clubs, something as basic as that, that there should be more to it. But of course, this is the uh, path the game has walked down. Mm. There is a sense at United of impending angst, if you like, you know, there's some talk already of a big protest planned for the game against Liverpool at Old Trafford next Sunday. John, it is a recurring crisis, it seems to be, at Manchester United. But does this one, following that Leicester defeat, and which compounded the problems of a pretty poor run, does this feel different? Look, I'd like to say yes, but I, I actually traced it back last season. I have to say, possibly not, in that basically... For a almost a crisis to feel different, you get something at the end of it, i.e. a change of manager. It has to resonate, I think, with the hierarchy of the club, with the owners. And basically, so they'd be forced into change. And I'm not convinced that they will be. Because if you look at the start of last season, it's a bit unsteady, it was difficult, and yet they came back and they stopped the league sort of over the New Year period, didn't they, just after... And in the end, they kind of made Champions League places quite comfortably, flirted with a cup competition. And what will happen this season? They'll probably, in the end, they might turn it around in a few weeks and maybe move up a place in the league. You know, again, sort of try to sort of, you know, make small gains, you know, go one step further, make a final. It's just, it feels like this is Man United that we're talking about. And yet, Every noise that it seems to come out of the club was saying, 
Ollie's making steady progress and we're happy with that progress. As long as we make progress and we are making progress, then we believe that he's the manager to go forward. That doesn't convince me at all. Look, listen, I think everyone can see that they are missing a holding midfield player. And that's so glaringly obvious. I just cannot believe that that's not been addressed. I also think they are missing a top, top level coach who drills that team, who coaches that team, who improves that team. Let's be honest here. I mean, Frank Lampard, who I thought was a great manager, I thought was incredibly harshly treated and sacked, frankly. But then Thomas Tuchel comes in and he makes the world a difference. And you cannot tell me if that were to change and just, for example, they got rid of Solskjaer and brought in an Antonio Conte figure, for example, that he would improve that team. He would make them challenges because they have a squad that should be challenging, in my view, for the Premier League. And yet, are they going to challenge? Are they going to carry it to the end? I don't see it. I just don't see it. I think they'll be in the top four. And I think they, again, will push for one of the cup competitions. You know, who knows? They might, you know, actually make the Champions League knockout stages this year rather than drop into the Europa League. And they'll call that progress. It's just not enough. If you want to be considered the best club in the world, biggest club in the world, as Man United do, then I'm sorry, that's just, you have to move now and you have to make things happen yesterday. Yeah, well, if you think about it, Megs, you know, their next nine games, a couple against Atalanta and one against Villarreal in the Champions League. Then in Premier League terms, Liverpool home, Spurs away, Man City home, Watford away, Chelsea away, Arsenal home. How many wins can you realistically see Manchester United getting out of that lot? I think Watford, uh, given what Crossy saw on Saturday, probably will be a win for them. Arguably, they, they'll have a chance at Spurs. I can't see them getting too many points, can you? Well, see, this is the big issue. And I, I, mean, I agree with Crossy. It's, it's been the, the nature of Solskjaer's three, almost three years so far has been, just when you think it's going to get really bad, he pulls it out of why he gets a result. Although the flip side is just when, it, when, just when it looks like they're going to do anything, they always drop down. But right now, at least, something feels different about this period. Throughout his three years, the one thing that's always been said is the players really like him and they're playing for him. Now, although that doesn't necessarily equate to good man management, given good man management is actually about kind of, you know, raising players beyond their level. But they do like Solskjaer, so they do play for him. But at the moment there seems a bit of a disaffection among the players. You can see it on the pitch, some of the reactions. And also on the other side, unlike in the last three years, it does feel like there's a little bit of a deep realisation among a lot of other clubs about United that they look vulnerable. Teams seem to say, we can get at these. There's, I mean, I was, I was talking to someone connected to Everton last week. because I mean, There's no fear factor, but even despite Ronaldo, there's nothing to fear about them. And that loads of clubs have, played them and particularly with Everton they, they're almost frustrated they didn't get more out of the game or they didn't go for it more because they just felt United were there to be got at and if that realisation is spread around the league they remain as vulnerable as they look and people think they are then almost literally every single game is up for grabs and then they've got real problems and because then it goes beyond the situation they've had for the last year and a half or so where they're basically dependent on individuals to bail them out and especially if those individuals aren't on the form they have been or as it's become maybe even more of an issue that Ronaldo's presence is actually causing a problem in terms of how, how the team works. I mean, the one thing I noticed with Ronaldo on Saturday, I know there's been a bit, a bit of debate about how much he presses and all this, 
But it went beyond that. There was one moment where he's basically just walking back. He wasn't even looking to close the angles and Leicester players to block off a pass. It was literally like he was genuinely just saving his energy for when a chance presented itself. And that will have knock-on effects. You're right. I mean, it's difficult to see them picking up too many points. But then as Crossy was discussing a few moments ago as well, this United hierarchy, now Woodward is obviously on his way out, which could potentially change things. Although the ultimate decision still comes down to Joel Glazer, no, no matter who's there. But Woodward, and I, I assume this feeds into the rest of the hierarchy, they're convinced they've got another Fergie on their hands, that this is all going to turn around, that everyone is going to look, you know, or any, any critics are going to end up looking stupid with it because it, it will change. But it'll be interesting what they're basing that opinion off from within the club, because from the outside and from performances, it's difficult to see what it's based on. Yeah, because to that point, Crossy, you've been around a lot of very, very experienced, celebrated managers in your time. When I heard or saw the uh, Solskjaer comments on Marcus Rashford, you know, telling him to prioritise his football, I just thought, oh dear. Now, that is the sort of gaffe which is avoidable, and a much more experienced manager would have avoided it, wouldn't he? And that, to me, almost summed up the strange naivety of, of Solskjaer's approach. Yeah, I think you're spot on in the past. I did look at that. And look, we know ourselves, don't we, sometimes. You can get lured into that and basically get slightly tempted to saying something you don't really want to or mean. But he said it. Make no mistake about that. I mean, that's not not in any way kind of being mischievous or twisting words or whatever. It's pretty clear. And I just thought, wow, you have got the shining example of a footballer and doing good off the pitch. And frankly, you are detracting from that in what you say. And I think someone wiser and sharper and more experienced just doesn't go down that road. I mean, this is the guy that's been celebrated for making such a big change beyond the boundaries of football and has changed the landscape of what footballers can do and the impact they can make. I've got so much respect for Marcus Rashford. And, and by the way, comes on and scores an absolute stunner. <laughs> you know? OK, look, last season wasn't his finest, but he was playing with it two separate injuries throughout. You know, he still gave his absolute all for the team. And I think that you ask the average person in the street and said, name is real figurehead, a focal point of football, who you look up to and respect, who would say Marcus Rashford. And he's just been an absolute shining light. And the manager just doesn't need to go anywhere near that, anywhere near that. He can easily say, you know, I'm perfectly comfortable with it. What a difference Marcus Rashford has made. And come out with a real positive. And to flip the other way just seemed wrong. I must say, Solskjaer, I think, has, has actively tried to improve his dealings with the press. You know, he's much more friendly, accessible, tries to sort of kind of help a little bit more and it has improved press-wise. But that really struck me as, oh, blimey, that's a bit naive. And that's, you know, going down the wrong path there because, honestly, Marcus Rashford doesn't need to be told that. No, I tend to agree. I suppose also, Migs, major managers understand the power of their platform. And I think when you look at Jurgen Klopp, for instance... I thought it was very striking over the last few days that he was probably the only major manager to actually be very overt in his opposition to the Newcastle takeover on the broadest level possible. Did that tell us something more about Klopp and someone as a figurehead of a football club who's quite prepared to take a stand? 
Yeah, completely. Courage of convictions, integrity. Now I know when he when he said his line, there's all sorts of responses from people looking to point out some sort of hypocrisy. But like, if we perpetually point out kind of possible hypocrisy and everything, then no, nothing ever gets discussed. So it's to to Klopp's credit, he did that. It was frustrating actually that more managers didn't speak out. But in fact, and but then this this is also the issue with some of their clubs. I mean, I I, I was doing something last Thursday on the reaction to the Newcastle takeover and what happened at the Premier League meeting on Tuesday. We know it was discussed. We know specific clubs were vocal against it. But when it came to actually putting their name next to it, no one wants to. And, this, and then, so this kind of... No one in football wants to openly discuss these things. And it's why I think it was an issue with the managers. But then something massive happens, comes down the line like the Super League, and everyone acts shocked. But that's because the, no one will actually address the problems that create these situations in the first place. And it's why I think it's the club's credit that he actually was willing to get involved and was willing to stay his opinion and, and assert real problems. And I think, and actually, from a media perspective, I have to say as well, I was particularly appreciative of the fact that he said Richard Masters should say something. Because I, I do find it absolutely remarkable that the Premier League has just sanctioned what is not just a historic moment for its own competition, but a historic moment for sport in in allowing this takeover. And I know people might point to the precedent of the 2008 Manchester City, but it is different because of how much we know now and because of the different nature of the deals and because football is less naive. And it's amazing that the figure ultimately responsible for this hasn't said a word in public. And now I, I do wonder, are they kind of hoping it'll go away? Or But this is going to be something hovering there until Masters does his next press briefing. He, it's eventually going to come up. He's going to have to address it at some point. And I do find it remarkable that nothing has been said. And I, I think Klopp was absolutely right to call him out and say something should have been said given the scope and nature of this deal. Yeah. Liverpool at Atletico on Tuesday. That's a fixture that will always have resonance due to you know, COVID connotations. John, you saw them on Saturday. Unbeaten on, in 18 in the Premier League. Huge momentum. Alexander-Arnold, I can't find anyone in the game who's got a better range of passing. Interesting, Virgil van Dijk, he's a dozen games into his comeback, seems to really you know, regain that quiet reassurance that he gives others. And of course, you know, at your game, Mo Salah was the talk of the town, wasn't he? Is he the best player in the world on current form, as seems to be the consensus? Well, how on earth can Roberto Firmino score a hat-trick and still not be man of the match. Because I don't think he was. I thought Mo Salah was so good. And his goal was just mesmerising, frankly. I thought his Man City goal was going to be goal of the season. Well, he's just trumped it himself. And so he's at the moment, for me, he's got goal of the season one and two. He's playing absolutely, at the moment, off the scale Mo Salah. I mean, he's so sharp and so incisive. His runs, his... His work rate, for example, in the first goal, just fantastic the way he plays. Uh, Firmino basically scored a hat-trick of tappings. And that's not to in any way be disrespectful to these goals because he's still got to be in the right place. And that's a tribute to his movement and his anticipation. And that's got to be absolutely fantastic to get in the position where you do put them in as tappings. But also it's down to the work of Mane, and then Salah. I mean, at the moment, I do think that Salah on, on form is unquestionably the best player in the world. I would stress on form because I do still think that Messi is 
as perhaps more natural talent, if you like. But I do think that maybe the time is coming when you're maybe seeing the passing of the baton because Salah is just at the moment, is just untouchable, absolutely unplayable. And it feels like Liverpool have got that momentum. They've got that winning feeling that goes into every single Premier League game at the moment. Yes, we're into the Champions League, but and they'll make changes. And I think one of the most noticeable things is they often make changes in midfield. And I still think that basically they will chop and change. They might lose players. And basically the biggest question about Liverpool is the depth of the squad. But arguably, I think they are playing some of the best stuff since they won in their all-conquering title winning season. And it's, they're just untouchable at the moment. They're definitely in the title title race, make no mistake about that. I wasn't sure that they would be, but they most definitely are. And they're just playing like a dream. They will take some stop in at the moment because they're so, so dangerous in every regard, whether that's on the counter-attack, whether it's at home, whether it's sort of chasing games. Fabulous at the moment, Liverpool, fabulous. Just on that with Salah, actually, John, on the question of whether he's the best in the world, I mean, sometimes with this, I find it it's almost better to break it down simply. I mean, if you're on a pitch now, or if you're putting out a team now, who do you think is the player that's going to hurt the opposition the most? Or on the opposite side, who's the player you fear the most? Who's going to do the most damage? And what I agree across, the, I, I think for me, Messi's probably up there as the best of all time. But right now, given where he is physically in his, in his mid-30s and how he's fitting into the Paris Saint-Germain team, right now, he's not as devastating as Salah. If you put them both on a pitch at the moment, it looks like Salah's going to do more right now. And I think that that's why it's fair to say at the moment he is the best in the world. If that's the case, Miggs, why not give him the, the massive contract he, he deserves? Or is there more going on here than meets the eye? Do you think that Salah or the people around him see the advantages of one final career-defining move, perhaps export the brand to a Barcelona or a Real Madrid? I mean, the one thing there, I, I think you're right, yeah, they are casting around. The long-term plan, of course, was to eventually go to Real Madrid and succeed Cristiano Ronaldo. The signing of Hazard changed that, although Hazard's situation may require another another change there. He probably should be careful, given because post-pandemic, and given everything we're talking about and related, related to the Super League, there's not exactly as much money in the bigger European clubs now. And say with someone like Real Madrid and actually Barcelona, given what's happened recently, if they're spending big money again, they're going to go younger just because of the nature of the business decisions. And Madrid are obviously obsessed with bringing in Mbappe and Haaland. Although that, that is one area that could create an opening for Salah in that, say, if Mbappe leaves Paris Saint-Germain next year, as everyone expects then suddenly there's an opening there. And Paris Saint-Germain can obviously pay the wages he wants. And I think on the other side, on the Liverpool side, I mean, obviously, this has been such a test of Liverpool's wage structure and their commitment to it. But I suppose there's something else in that Salah's 29. And the usual thinking in football is that this is the age for players' last big contract that they've probably only got. Basically, you know, it's almost like kind of selling high, that they've got maybe two years left their best, and then before there's an inevitable physical decline. But I suppose the nature of modern sports science is that mightn't be the case anymore. And look at the amount of footballers we're talking about now who, at the very least, go into their mid-30s, still on absolutely sensational form. Messi being one of them, Lewandowski, Ronaldo only up until recently, basically, but his numbers were still superb up until now. Jamie Vardy. It's not like even players of five, ten years ago. We're, we, we're seeing even more evolution in sports science. 
And if you look at Salah, I mean, you see it when he takes his top off in celebration. We're talking about an uber athlete who's looked after himself for his entire career. And if that's the case, he could well have a fair few more. Like, I mean, if he's got six or seven years left at an absolutely top performance rather than two, three, that completely changes the discussion about one contract to give him. And that, of course, is something that uh, Liverpool have to think about. Yeah, um, um, something that players have to think about is career progression. Raheem Sterling, Crossy, is he at a crossroads in his career? Because it seems that Pep Guardiola is pretty sanguine about him moving on. Options may be limited. A little bit of what Mig said there, where La Liga, yeah, fine, but does he go there or does he go to a Premier League wannabe like, like Newcastle? Where do you see Sterling's future? Well, I think he'd like to see it abroad, frankly. I thought what he said last week, he did it in a sort of a Financial Times live event, basically. It was the most bizarre thing. Yeah. Modern, modern <laughs> um, football crossing. Modern, modern football, football, yeah. And it made the FT front page, which was, high, you know, basically, as, as one of our regulars, Paul Hayward, sort of commented on Twitter, basically. It's the first time you'll ever see a Premier League football star making a come and get me plea on the front page of the FT. I mean, it was absolutely <laughs> incredible, really. But um, listen, fair play, you know. It was well-trailed, I think, that basically he was going to do it. He did it with the club's blessing. And I cannot believe for a second that the club didn't know that he was going to be asked about it. If you analyse what Raheem Sterling said, he was incredibly respectful. He's matured and grown as a player, as an individual. I thought he did it, he handled it really well. The underlying message was that I, I'm absolutely still in love with this game and I want to play, basically. And I'm not happy to kind of sit there take the money and crawl along, if you like, with Manchester City. I mean, he's just been fantastic for Manchester City. Last season wasn't so good, if you're being realistic. I think he's obviously only started before the weekend. He only started two Premier League games, which is telling in itself. I think Guardiola did see him perhaps as a solution through the middle, and that's going to take time, of course it is. And I still think he might yet hit a groove this season because he's such a good player for club and country that he might hit a groove, might hit a purple patch. He could be a main figure in their push for the title again and he signs a new contract. All is well and all is okay, and basically it all works out for the best. But if it doesn't, then I do think we will be in a situation next summer when he's got one year left and City have to make a decision on it. And Sterling has to. And I think his preference would be to go and challenge himself and play abroad. I mean, it was farcical, wasn't it, a few weeks ago when the Spanish press came up with one paper, I think Sport in particular, sort of came up with their story that Barcelona would look to loan him in January. I mean, come on. I mean, also, we shouldn't forget the fact this is the club that had to move on the best player in the world and then still struggle to sign, pay the players' wages. And that's the fact of the matter. But the notion that City would loan him in January is just fanciful and farcical, frankly. So it will have to be a proper move. And like we discussed with Salah, where's the money? That is the issue. You know, who's able to pay a monster transfer fee? Who's able to pay, you know, huge wages for one of the Europe's biggest stars? It's going to be difficult. And players are finding it more difficult to kind of map out their futures at the moment. And I think that's a concern. Can I see him playing for another Premier League club? Not really, no. I don't think that's in his in his mindset. Would he go to Newcastle? Well, no, no. He just wouldn't. He's the player at the top of his game. You know, he's at the peak of his powers. He's in a really good place. He's 26 going on 27 soon. 
And I just think he needs to be playing at the top level so he can deliver trophies as he has been doing the last three or four years. But he is most definitely at a crossroads. I am surprised that Pep hasn't used him more this season, simply because at times I think the one thing you'd aim at City, you've been in good form, produced great performances. They haven't been incisive enough from an attacking sense. And I think Guardiola has to make that work. And one of those players that can make that work is Sterling. Yeah, because it is interesting, isn't it, how fluid fortunes can be. There was a real irony in Guardiola's praise of Bernardo Silva at the weekend because there's a player that, let's be honest, he was probably quite content to move on if it worked in the jigsaw that would have ended up with Harry Kane at Manchester City. City Megs are in Bruges midweek. Will they find it as difficult there as PSG appeared to do? It could be an awkward game. Now, to be fair... Despite the last result, which I get again was at where PSG end up doing number on City, I think City are a better team and with with the emphasis very much on team than Paris Saint Germain. There's more of a system there, or much more of a system, and I, I actually do think it does mean games like Bruges should be much less hassle to them. There is maybe actually a bit of a, uh, and this is sort of separate to. <laughs> what we spend most of the summer talking about, which is the, the pursuit by, by Harry Kane, in that there still feels a little bit of a disconnect between the football city play and the flow of goals. And they do seem a little bit as if it's kind of harder to get the breakthrough in some games than they have in previous seasons. But in saying that, I, I'd still... And Bruges are, they're a decent side, but I'd still expect City to pick them off relatively easy. But then, if if not, it could be another game that maybe speaks to maybe bigger issues this season. They ongoing discussion about whether they should have signed a striker. Now, I know Guardiola gets so irritated now every time it's brought up, but that's what it's, that's what happens when it's such a public pursuit of one of the biggest strikers in Europe <laughs> all summer. And it's not going to go away until basically the trophies for the season decided because that will ultimately indicate whether it's been a good decision or a bad decision. John, you're going to be at um, Stamford Bridge on Wednesday uh, for Chelsea's uh, game against Malmo, which on form should be a pretty comfortable night. I just want to look at Chelsea in the round, if you like. Understandably, perhaps, with you know the hype around Lukaku, we do concentrate on their attacking potential. But are we missing a, a bit of a subtle point here about the way they tightened up at the back? Only three goals conceded by a defence, which is actually, under Tuchel, been pretty shrewdly rotated. It has been, and it was rotated, and we saw changes again on Saturday, didn't we? to such an extent that I think the system worked, but I think by the end, in the last 10 minutes, Brentford were pulling them apart, weren't they? I mean, Saar was there and changes. It looked very unfamiliar at the back. Um, Mendy was brilliant, wasn't he? I mean, this is the point that I was going to make, really, in that Mendy is the most... By the way, we should also mention Ben Chilwell. He scores the goal and basically has been out of favour for much of this season. I think he's struggled to come back after the Euros and the Euro squad, not that he played a huge part in that, let's be honest. And I think it's taken him a bit of time to find his form and find his feet, and he played well in that game. But I think that the defence has been great. The system has been fantastic. So he's used different players in the, in the defensive system, in the midfield system as well. But because they are so familiar, they're so well coached, that that has been absolutely phenomenal for Chelsea. That, for me, is why they haven't conceded many goals. And yet, the fail-safe on Saturday was Mendy, who 
is the most, I think, unconventional goalkeeper you are likely to see. <laughs> in that, basically, he has been such an almost an unsung hero. You know, Petr Cech identified him, didn't he, as a goalkeeper that could really step up and sort of fill the the gap that was left by Kepper, if you like, because Kepper just hadn't delivered consistently. And yet, Mendy is a fantastic goal line goalkeeper in that he doesn't particularly come for crosses he doesn't particularly command but what he does do is produce fantastic reflex saves and sometimes he does make unconventional saves in that basically just gets to the ball and then thinks about the consequences later he's so brave he's so good under pressure and he showed all aspects to his game and I guess he's unconventional in the two three years before Chelsea he was on the dole basically without a club and he's not the most fashionable goalkeeper, almost. And that yet, Czech identified his quality. And he is absolutely fantastic as a goalkeeper, really. The difference that he's made, the confidence that he resonates throughout the rest of the defence, in that basically, even if they do get, you know, if attackers do get behind that Chelsea back line, they've still got to get past Mendy. And Mendy is just so flexible, such a good goalkeeper, such a good shot stopper that I do think they've got an absolute gem in Mendy who, who makes such a difference. And it's interesting, isn't it? When, when we normally talk about world-class goalkeepers, they've been almost in the system, if you like, and they work their way up. I remember when Chelsea signed Courtois, for example, every major club had been after him for about the previous five years because everyone knew about him and he was coming through the system. And yet Mendy, frankly, a few years earlier, had been out of work without a club completely lost and so he's just not regarded within the system and yet Petr Cech to his eternal credit Chelsea to their eternal credit have identified someone there who yes was doing well in France but that's often not a particularly good indicator barometer of success and they've got themselves an absolute gem who is I'll probably put the kibosh on him and make an absolute howler on Wednesday night now but he's fantastic I've got so much admiration for him and he's one of my favourite players at the moment, because he's not always conventional. He's not conventional in the way that he came up. But I just think he's phenomenal. I can't understand why he's not getting more accolades or more credit, because he certainly deserves it. But just on that cross, like, he's, he's one of those goalkeepers who, he just, and I, I always think like almost, it's quite a basic thing, but I think it is instructive. It's that capacity for whether they're going to make an error or not. Mm. And with Mendy, I never feel he's going to. He, I mean, so he's, he, he, it's not just that he kind of, pulls out, as you say, this unconventional style that can lead to some really incredible saves. But he's really solid as well. And I never feel he's going to be vulnerable anyway. Now, now as you say, because we've talked about like this, <laughs> maybe we'll finally see that error this week. But it just doesn't seem the case with him. No, I, I can't remember. I cannot remember a howler from him. I mean, Ke- yeah. you know, Kepa, Kepa, let's be honest, has been a good goalkeeper at times, but has made a catalogue of errors. I, I I literally was thinking, racking my brains this morning. I've seen him a lot. When's he made an mm. error? I don't. That, that's yeah. really led to a goal. I don't think. He, I can't think of one. Mm. I want. I wonder about Casper um, Schmeichel at Leicester. Megs, you know, I look at him, and there is a an aura of dependability, a little, little bit like his dad, to be honest. And he does seem to have almost a leadership role at that club. Do you think actually? That Manchester United win on Saturday was a turning point of Leicester's season. It did feel like that, didn't it? 
And and again, maybe I mean, not just to briefly return to United as well. It, it it maybe comes down to the fact another and it was another team that sensed vulnerability United and almost used United to kind of <laughs> replenish themselves. I mean, what did that game come down to on Saturday? It basically came down to a system that usually works against a team that doesn't really have a system. Now, for all sorts of reasons, it hadn't quite really come off for Leicester this year. I think it was mostly down, to be fair, to a touch of a hangover from last year. Injuries, most of all, by far. And then the combined effect of that maybe kind of meant they were a little bit lacking in confidence. Now, of course, they did have Evans back at the weekend. And just because of the nature of the game they were playing, it restored a bit of uh, assurance to Leicester. and meant we finally saw what this Leicester are supposed to be. So yeah, I do, I do think it will be a turning point, especially if they've got players back and they just have that um, that assertiveness running through the team again. Mm. They're away to Spartak Moscow on Wednesday. And if you look at it logically, winning the Europa League is probably their natural next target. West Ham also, Crossy, uh, they're at home to Genk on Thursday. Again, that's a competition they could go pretty deep in, I would have thought. Just dwell, please, on the type of job that David Moyes has done because he could have been back at Everton as Everton manager at the weekend, couldn't he, if you know the original plan had been followed through. He's built a team in his own image in many ways. They're very obdurate. They, I think they've won seven and drawn two of their last nine away games in all competitions. He's doing a heck of a job, isn't he? It really is, yeah. Someone alerted me to something small that I just mentioned in my column last week that basically David Moyes has kind of just embraced the West Ham history a little bit and tried to sort of welcome back some of the greats to the training ground. Said, open door policy, come and see what we're doing, basically. You're so welcome. And, you know, it's been difficult for clubs in these COVID times. Joe Cole's been there, Rob Green's been there, you know, and everyone as you like, really. And I just think one of the best things that he's been able to do is just engage a little bit more with West Ham fans because I think there was a bit of a disconnect. Well, I think that's pretty obvious, isn't it, basically? You, you you move from Upton Park, you move to the London Stadium, the fans are feeling aggrieved, promises made, you know, lots of stuff being said. All of a sudden, you've kind of in a situation where you've not just got to be a football manager who manages things on the pitch, but you've got to reconnect with the fans and make them feel as if it's their club again. And honestly, that game, it was on a Monday night. It was West Ham, Leicester. It was the best atmosphere in the London Stadium since, you know, Golden Saturday. Um, It was just (laughs) astonishing. What was it called? Blimey. Um, You know, it was just amazing. Basically, that was the best atmosphere there. And the fans feel it and are back in love with the club. Of course, there'll be hiccups along the way. What about Moise's substitution bringing on Mark Noble? God, you know, everyone's going, "What, what have you done, Moise? You lost the plot, basically. But honestly, his improvements that he's made, you see the energy and the enthusiasm in the players' performances and what they're prepared to give for the manager. I just think that shines a light, really, on on Moyes and his man management. You know, he's open, he is prepared to speak up and put his head above the parapet. It's a difficult ownership, isn't it? It's difficult. You know, it's lots of different directions and fragments, but it feels like the biggest win that Moyes has made is to bring a bit of unity. And I think once you do that, that shows through on the pitch in performances. And I think that Moyes, the job that he's done by taking a West Ham into Europe in the first place 
and then keep on progressing since has just been nothing short of remarkable. I think they'll be tested this season because they didn't make that many signings to date. The squad is going to be tested. But I do think to continually get results as he's done, you know, another impressive victory at Goodison, another really disciplined, strong performance. I just think he deserves so much credit. He really is doing a super, super job. So if the mood music at uh, the London Stadium is quite light and engaging, can you dwell, Migs, on the mood music at Newcastle? Is it still really discordant? And what was the atmosphere like there? And what does that tell us about the club? But also, does it give you any confidence that they know what they're doing? At the moment, from everything I've heard, I have little confidence in the current hierarchy. So we've got Amanda Stavely and her husband, Merda Gadusi, leading everything. At present, Stavely seems to be more concerned about appearing in the media, while Gadusi is handling all calls with agents. And as I've written this morning, there was one call to one big name, and they were kind of perplexed by the nature of the call. Some of the football expertise that was supposed to be involved were... Um, Owen Brown and Frank Parland, but from what I've been told, they haven't been too centrally involved yet, and which currently points to a real lack of football expertise in in the current decision, and and that probably plays into the whole situation of why Steve Bruce hasn't been sacked yet. Now, of course, there are bigger debates on Steve Bruce, and I know a lot of people in football and a lot of people play from will defend him. But regardless of what you actually think of him, whether he's been given a raw deal at Newcastle by supporters or whether he should be sacked, the fundamental problem here right now is that because we all know they want rid of him, his authority is completely undermined. And again, even if you're a critic of Steve Bruce, he previously had a really strong authority because it was known that he was Ashley's man. And that did have an effect on players because the players knew where they stand. Now these players who themselves are uncertain about their own futures and basically know the club will want to replace them in the next few months to the next few years, they also have, the, they, they know the managers are sitting duck, basically. And so it all feeds into what yesterday became a mess on the pitch and speaks to the fact that in terms of the football, this hierarchy don't seem to really know what they're doing. And they've let it, and in, you know, it was one of the, the themes going into the week that this was going to be, this was supposed to be their big day of celebration Part of the reason it became, well, okay, again, you could say it was 14 years of underinvestment by actually that led to this, but still they had had the completely um, avoidable problem of a manager who isn't popular among the fans and who now has his authority in their mind. They could have addressed that. They didn't. And it did feed into what was a really strange atmosphere today. Of course, there was the incident with the uh, supporter collapse and mercifully seems okay now that just made, made that an even a stranger day in terms of tone. Uh, but overall, I did find it quite odd. We were walking around earlier. Initially, it was quite subdued, but in town, it was building. Just I was talking to a few journalistic colleagues before, before and, and afterwards, and we were kind of saying, like, while there was this electricity about it, it didn't feel like, say, a big European night at a club. Now, to be fair, I was talking to some Newcastle fans. They said... It was buzzing. They haven't seen it like that. And, and as a basic example, they pointed to how in usual times under Ashley, people would just turn up to the game and that'd be that. Whereas yesterday, they were gathering around the stadium four hours beforehand. It was an event of a day in that sense. I did find a mix. Obviously, I mean, it, it can't be escaped that while there were 
a lot of fans, you know, dressing up in thobes and the like and, and looking ridiculous. There were a lot of fans who were conflicted about that and conflicted about the ownership. I, I think it, it can't be denied that will have had some influence on the atmosphere, even subconscious. In saying that, one of the strangest moments of the day for me, and like it's it'd be, basically there are three images that will kind of live with me from yesterday. One was what was quite a, a really unsettling scene of the paramedics having to attend to that fan. Again, thankfully, look, he was stabilized and brought to hospital. Looks like it's okay, hopefully. The second then was the reaction, to, you know, for the last half hour, which was Stavely, the new chairman, and so many fans dressed up, just looking a bit glum at how things panned out. But as much as anything, there was almost what was a really weird scene, to be honest, before the game, where the entire crowd were asked to big, give a huge Geordie welcome to the new chairman, you know, who's also the chairman of Saudi Aramco, and they all turned and greeted him in this kind of dutiful manner. And it just did ring a bit odd. And over, it fed into a strange... Yes, there was obviously some real electricity around it because so many of these supporters have wanted change for so long. But it, 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 the, the end, it, I think a lot of us left not, not really knowing how to feel. And that's even, of course, allowing many of, many of us who have, of course, the obvious reservations about the, the human rights questions of the owners. But it, it did feed into a strange day. And, and, the, and the overriding feeling was really that this, this could get a lot worse before it gets any better. And at Newcastle, are in real danger of going down. Um, because what, they've got 11 fixtures now where with this squad, and we'll see what happens to the manager uh, before they can even bring anyone in. And, they, and there are even questions about the sort of players they can bring in in January given their situation, it doesn't look that promising right now, especially when you have so much confusion on the football side at the top of the club. It, it does seem utterly bizarre that you have a takeover. And generally, when we've had takeovers in the past, they've had X, Y and Z lined up. And yes, I know we're not in a transfer window. But if you are making it clear behind the scenes that you are looking to replace the manager, you absolutely have to have a manager lined up. And it feels like they have been so disrespectful, you know, to Steve Bruce and left Steve Bruce hanging. I have to say, I, I honestly, we're, we're broadcasting right to 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 fans of of lots of other clubs. All my friends who are fans of other clubs think, "What's Steve Bruce done?" And yes, I get it from the Newcastle fan point of view. I understand that they're basically closely associated with Mike Ashley and they see him as a puppet, but. Honestly, you know, I, I think he has been treated badly. I think some of the reporting on it has become incredibly personal and difficult. And I, I think it's crossed the line. I do. I think it's, you know, of course we know that Newcastle fans, you know, still worship Rafa Benitez. They see the club as, as being big enough to attract a world-class name and reputation. But Steve Bruce, you know, I, I don't think, you know, has deserved absolutely everything that he's had. You know, I think Luke Edwards did a piece last from the Telegraph did a piece last week with with Steve Bruce saying that you know whatever you make of him, you know he's still a man with feelings and with family and he deserves better. And I, I, I frankly I agree with that. And I think that if you, you know, if you're a fan of another club, you, you're scratching your head. I sent a few messages to mates, you know, sort of not in journalism, not you know, just basically fans of other clubs. What do you think? And they all said, oh, I think it's disgusting, you know, what's happened. You know, some of the coverage, I think, particularly on the TV side of it, has just been ridiculously cheerleading. I mean, it's embarrassing quite how, you know, some of the TV companies employ these people. I mean, you know, there seems to be a new wave in journalism 
to encourage you know journalists to be fans in certain outlets in certain areas and spheres and it doesn't sit always comfortably with me that I, I, you've got to be objective and if you're objective you have to say I think I, I don't know that they deserve this it, I don't think it's I don't think it's right and it's more full on the takeover that they didn't have things in place to suddenly say behind the scenes yeah we'll be looking to change the manager and then 10 days later still not going to be in a position to do so so you have to say oh don't worry Steve we're always behind you yeah everything's calm everything's good how's uh, you know Steve Bruce has done well to keep his dignity, I think. And it's just, yeah, it's not a great look for everyone else looking in. It's not a great look from all aspects at the moment. And they have to kind of put that right quickly to maintain their kind of push for to be a really be taken seriously as a, as, a, as a huge club. Everyone wants to see Newcastle do well and thrive and, and go forward. The fans are, are, are something else. On a good day at St James, is fantastic. There's nothing like it. But at the moment, in my view, there's some way of capturing that dream. Yes, it's not an edifying spectacle, is it? Um, Steve Bruce may have his faults, but he deserves respect. You don't get to 1,000 games in football management without knowing your trade. Mike Ashley stole the club's soul, but the fawning attitude towards the new Saudi owners really stuck in the throat. I hear you say, oh, get over it. It's the modern world. It's modern football. But to be honest, I lost a little bit of love for the game over the weekend. Let's hope that this week and European competition, which I love, restores a bit of the faith. In the meantime, thanks to John and Miguel for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 